Welcome to Lead to Succeed. This is the podcast to hear from the leaders of today in various fields from entrepreneurs to corporate directors. We hear their stories, lessons learned and challenges faced, as well as insights and advice to become a successful and an inspiring leader. The podcast is presented by us, Callum and Rebecca Jenkins, as we both believe that we all have the potential to be outstanding leaders if that's what we choose. Welcome to our special guest today, and that is Tony Shirota of RLA, Reverse Logistics Association. So a big welcome to you, Tony. I'm well, sure thank you. our listeners are going to find out a little bit about what reverse logistics actually means. It's an important topic. But would you like to just kick off and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, certainly, uh, Rebecca, th- thank you. Thank you for this invitation, the opportunity to uh, uh, speak a little bit more about the uh, the dark side of logistics and what we do. But also, um, my career actually, uh, n- no connection to the reverse industry at all. Uh, the first 25 years of my career, um, five years with Sony, actually 30, five years with Sony, I was in sales and marketing. I was a sales guy. And I learned um, uh, five years at Sony, 25 years at Philips. I was doing it in my sleep. The first 10 years uh, at Philips, I was literally uh, on a winning sales team, a winning marketing team. And then one day, senior management came to me and said, you know what? We want you to fix the returns problem, which around the year 1999, uh, 2000, uh, we were a $2 billion company at Philips electronics, and we were getting uh, 10 to 12% of our, our shipments were coming back in returns. And that's a gigantic number. And, uh, and I took to it like a duck to water. I said, uh, okay, I went out there, I looked for best practices, which didn't exist. I looked for innovative ideas, which started to exist. And I looked for organizations to join, which also didn't exist until around the year 2003, when the Reverse Logistics Association was founded. And I joined it as a Phillips person for the first 10 years. I sat on the advisory board, participated in events, um, the RLA and supply chain management review articles that I wrote and other things may be kind of a recognized figure in the industry. And I felt that need to go out literally around the world with Phillips and, and preach about returns and reverse logistics. And, uh, and so then uh, uh, my career ended at Phillips. I became an independent consultant until the opportunity was there to take over the Reverse Logistics Association in 2016. It had begun to decline Mm -hmm. and I took it over at a pivotal point. Two of the board members, the only two that were left, asked me to take over and uh, that was Dell and uh, and Home Depot. Uh, They asked me to take it over, we knew each other and I did. We went from five members, we're approaching 200 member companies now. We went from a few thousand users in the community to over 30,000 users in our community. And we now are back to producing events all over the world, um, albeit not in person this year, but, uh, but still doing these virtual events and, and, and getting there. So um, it's a long career. It's a long way of saying, um, I felt like when I got into this industry, uh, I understood the core 
And the core isn't to be a supply chains professional or a financial professional. Um, the approach of every return is a reverse sale makes you think different. It's a paradigm shift. It's not about fixing the problem. It's about making the consumer's experience better. Because if you make the customer happy when they get their package or when they take their package home from the store, uh, if you make them happy and you exceed their expectations, the odds are they will keep it, and they will love it, and they will tell other people about it. And that's a best case scenario for any company. It is indeed, Tony. And I've had the pleasure of working with you um, over recent months and being involved with your European event. So I've experienced firsthand your leadership style and uh, it's been, I've really enjoyed working with you because you've been very trusting and allowed me to do what I had to do in order to support your business. So I've had some experience with that and I'm, I know Callum wants to kind of get to um, appreciate a little bit more about your leadership style and Maybe kicking off with the first, yeah, first sure. question. I'd like to share in your career so far, because it's really interesting to hear. Um, and I guess what would be interesting is, you know, you've worked, as you said, at some electronics companies, Sony and Philips, for, you know, a reasonable amount of time, and you've had some exposure to, like, board members and that kind of thing. Um, and you've got your own sort of, as mum said, unique leadership style. And that kind of, from as a, as a result of all those different experiences, what, in a nutshell, would you say kind of leadership means to you? I heard an incredible presentation once, uh, a keynote speech uh, at the Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show, one of the biggest shows in the world. Yes, yes. It was big, but I could listen to the speaker's comments defining the difference between manager and the leader. And the manager's role in life is to bring out the best in each person that works for them and make them successful. And a leader brings out the most common aspect of all people and makes them successful and makes a success out of it. And that focus on individual uh, uh, talent and making it better versus a, a pool, whether it's your companies, whether it's five employees or 500 employees, but to bring out what's best for the common good for all of them that's leadership. That that's bringing out. You can't lead one person at a time. It's not the same. You're a manager at that point. Uh, at the point you become a leader is when you're not managing each individual to their talents, but you're managing a large group to be successful and bring out the most success talents in all of them at once. So it's a little bit of a. To, that's the the significant difference to me. Sure. So you think it's kind of more of a, you know, sort of setting the overall vision for a company or an organization, getting sort of everyone in that team to buy into it and bring out the best in everyone to kind of move everyone forward rather than addressing particular um, skills of individuals. So. And, and Callum, that was a great way of saying it too. That's another aspect of having a vision, right? Um, people like Steve Jobs and, uh, uh, and, and, and others who led, and, and not to say that their vision was always nice or easy to get along with, um, but it, uh, you know, Bill Gates and, uh, and people like that, and Jack Welch, a notorious hacksaw guy that went in to slice companies up and things like that. So there's, there's, that's leadership with a vision. You may or may not agree with that vision all the time, 
but as as a person within the organization, you believe in the vision and you go for it. So uh, so yes, uh, vision's a good word, Callum, to use right. for leadership. Yeah, thanks, thanks for saying that. That's a, that's a good insight into, into your opinion on that. So if we can maybe say then, you know, one aspect of a good leader might be, you know, visionary or being able to set a vision, something like that. Do you think there's any other traits that you think a good leader typically exhibits, perhaps, you know, from people you look up to or from yourself or from your previous roles, kind of like other qualities that leaders generally tend to have? I think um, in my particular case, I was a great manager. I really managed people and I managed situations and I dealt with that. Um, and, and, the, and I think to become a great leader, it, it helps to have been a, a great manager as well. Um, because you have a sense of, and, and something we say about um, leaders is sometimes they are so high in the clouds that they don't see the planet Earth, right? Um, they forget their roots. They forget what it's like when they issue a directive of what it actually means for people on the ground to get it done. And so I think a, a leader, leaders are not necessarily born. I, I think uh, they, they can be born, but they're also made because if you come out of that managerial uh, background, it means that you have a sense of what it takes to get something done. So when you're leading, you remember that and you lead more effectively with that. I think that's a really good point. You know, it kind of comes down to your experiences, doesn't it? Doesn't it what you've learned from previous roles and how you can kind of build on that and as you said sort of set the vision and, and that type of thing so I guess the, the next kind of follow-up question for me on that Tony is you said you were you know you're a really good manager and you've had you know working at Philips um, taking on the the reverse logistics side of things is there any particular point it might be that or another time that sort of stuck out sticks out in your mind as a time when you moved into more of a leadership role or perhaps you know more of like an enhanced managerial role in a sense um, back at Phillips, we didn't call it reverse logistics because that's a newer term. Um, didn't exist very much back there. Um, so it was interesting for me to go to these events and talk about what did Phillips do to reduce returns. And um, at one point, uh, uh, one of these prestigious magazines, Supply Chain Management Review, a, a global magazine, uh, they actually approached me. They heard me speak at an event. And they said, we'd like you to write an article and write an article. And I said, okay, maybe. Um, and, and they said 5,000 words. And I totally choked. I'm like 5,000 words about what I did to reduce returns at Phillips. Um, and, and it was at that point that I began to write the article that I shifted gears from just being a manager to being in that more of a leader, because I understood that it, it, that point I really understood it was not one person could not change the world in a return space and although a lot of people are nice enough to give me some credit for that it really happened because I led other people with this vision um, and and it was a battle back then Callum because the the, the challenges back then around the, the turn of the century the challenges were that you were up against Six Sigma Right. And if you don't know Six Sigma, it's the engineers who say we make a perfect product. We're going to make it slightly more perfect, but we're making product that's ninety nine point nine percent perfect. And you're taking back 10 percent of it and there's nothing wrong with it. So there was that brick wall challenge I had to beat my head against over and over and um, and, and overcoming that challenge uh, really happened 
when something called Net Promoter Score came to the world. And the shift was no longer about making a perfect product. Yes, that's important. And engineers are well paid to make a perfect product, but they're not paid to make a great customer experience ever. Um, for example, back then, Callum, you might buy a, a, a clock radio, a simple clock radio, and the instruction book would be in 12 languages. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, and, and, and the small print. And, and you're like, how, does, how do I set the time? I mean, something as basic as that, as a clock radio, would come back with a lot of units, um, percentage of sales, and most of them worked. So the engineers would say, my God, what's wrong with you? You're taking things back that work. And I said, okay, but it didn't work for the customer. Mm -hmm. Something didn't go right. He didn't find the English language among the other 12 that were in the book. Um, he needed pictures. He needed simple language. He needed steps one, two, three, four. These are all, you, you can smile, Callum, and think to yourself, well, everything's like that now. But around the year 2000, it wasn't. It was, let's make it as complicated as we can engineering-wise. And what was going on at that time is the digital transformation had begun. So now let's think of the computer. That's, that's one of the biggest nightmare products. We can get the clothing and apparel, but the computer would take the blame for something not working. So back then you could add a camera, you could add a CD burner, you could add a fax machine, you could add all these products and, and they wouldn't play nice with each other. They would not connect. They were not uh, uh, interoperable uh, because the standards hadn't been agreed to. And so until that took place, returns were coming. Another a real clear example is uh, there's this little device way back then um, called an MP3 player. And uh, Callum, it may be before you're born, and that's okay. Um, but MP3 players um, traditionally started getting high returns because you would buy one to load all of your music. And you know, in the 90s, you're loading all your great music on this device, and you're loving it. Except if you use Napster, which is a big format back then, <laughs> dead now, but it was really big. And then you switch to iTunes or to Windows Media, you kept interfering with previous music. So they wouldn't play nice with each other. And the returns were upwards of 40% for MP3 players that the engineers would turn around and say, um, Tony, these things work, what are you doing? So then we switch gears to this concept of net promoter score. And in a nutshell, that means if you buy a product, do you love it enough to give it a high recommendation to other people? And the majority of humans, the majority of us, we're not gonna get, to, we're not gonna tell other people about something we bought. We're gonna tell people about a bad experience and you're going to curse that MP3 player, or that digital camera, because it wouldn't work with your products. And you're going to say bad. You'll easily get riled if something doesn't work. If something works, it's boring. It worked. Okay, so what? If it exceeds your expectations, you might go online and post something great about it. So, um, so that's kind of what happened. Net Promoter Score took over and delivered um, huge financial returns for companies. Companies using Net Promoter Score were successful, uh, more successful financially and, and building brand loyalty. And it really happened when Philips shifted gears 
And at the very top of the corporation, this is Phillips Global Corporation, the board of management said, part of our bonus is gonna be tied to improving net promoter score, improving that customer experience. That's what we call a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about the engineers making great product anymore. It was about leadership saying, we want our customers to love our products. So um, that was uh, how we overcame some of that challenge. What do you think, Tony, have been the big challenges to you personally in leadership? I mean, that was a, you, you tackled there a massive issue around returns. But if we, if we take it to you personally and you developing your leadership style, what have been some personal challenges to you that you've had to overcome? And how have you managed to overcome those? Because I think many of our listeners will be facing challenges and they're maybe looking for some practical tips and ideas as to how they can overcome things that they're facing right now. Practical tip, most important tip in your life. Unless you are a financial expert in the area that you're in, and and I rarely, rarely have met people who are financial geniuses and marketing or sales or or leader. Uh, uh, they're they're not usually the same. And the most important rule about development and training for me, outside of going to meetings and going to events and listening to smart people, the most important aspect of of becoming a leader in this role was finding a finance person to be a drinking buddy. So help me, the more I could go to the bar with Wayne and talk about what the CFO was going to beat me up about next month on the inventory, the asset recovery, or the high returns of this category, until I had a finance person teach me, and he did, I gave you his name, Wayne. Wayne and I um, our, our leader at the time, vice president of the service organization, um, basically had a chat with us and put us in a room and said, the two of you are going to figure out how to get a handle on this returns problem. And you're not coming out of this room until you do. Now, that was a little bit of a metaphorical speaking, but I spent time in his world to understand the measurements. And we shifted Phillips from measuring each return to measuring the end-to-end -end holistic costs and, and things of returns that where it could be made a difference. Because if, it, if the returns and reverse logistics exist only in a silo, your development of, of ways to reduce it is going to be limited. But if you look at the end-to-end -end from the product design to the product packaging, to the market introduction process, to the information at retail, to the call center that takes the call after someone buys it, if you don't look at that end-to-end -end and measure every dime that's being spent along the way, you're not going to be successful. If you have a finance person for a drinking buddy, you will become you will become very successful as, as I was fortunate enough to be in the right place at the right time. And so when it comes to developmental training, uh, uh, I'd say that number one, have a finance person as your drinking friend. Number two, find out who the subject matter experts are. Now keep in mind around the year 2000, when I went into this, there were no associations there were no organizations focused on it. There was no mag, no reverse logistics supply chain magazine, um, no conferences about it, et cetera. So as those began in around the year 2002, 2003, uh, prior to that, I was part of an organization called the Ease of Use Roundtable. 
And it was a global organization. So it opened my eyes to what companies like Dell and Intel and Apple and Microsoft and HP were all doing to try to make that experience easier. Uh, again, I don't want to talk about how old I am, but I have to talk about the fact that a computer used to take an average of six hours to turn it on, set it up, make it work. That has been reduced to instant on, which we knew had to happen. So little things like color coding the plugs in the back of the computer, setting uh, USB uh, standards, USB 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, and they're all backwards compatible. So the lessons learned there and, and, and understanding that a serial number is important to reduce a return so that if someone brings back a product to a store and it's got a serial number, make sure it's the same one that you sold out the front door. So there's, there's little best practices that came out of that whole experience and listening to those people, I met for the first time ever, people called human factor engineers. And these are people whose focus was nothing but watch the customer buy the product and open it up and experience it so that you can learn that clamshells are the most dangerous products on the market because they rip people's fingers apart as you try to open up or cut clamshell. Little examples like that. And um, it was all about watching those subject matter experts. And over, the, over time, Tony, and experiencing you know, going from Six Sigma to Net Promoter Score and taking the RLA from where it was to where it is now. Do you think your leadership style has changed? Um, no, my leadership style is very much in the service um, uh, world. Um, we are here to perform a valuable service for the people who are out there. Um, I'm not here to take money away. I'm not here to tell people a hack and slash companies. I'm here to stress the importance of what we do and how big a difference it could make. When you talk about a company like Philips, and I indicated we were $2 billion in sales, 11, 12% returns. I cut that number within three to four years. I cut that number in half. And that's maybe one of why I was one of the last people standing at Phillips before they dissolved that division and licensed it out because I could make a dramatic financial difference by focusing on how to make people happier, how to make products better. And so that's a service orientation. It's, it's that style of leadership versus the demand format of leadership and telling people what to do. It was going out there, learning what the best thing is to do and sharing it. And you build credibility because those ideas are clearly successful. And you know, when you start going from 12% returns to eight to seven to six to five to four, we got it down under 4% on a returns basis. So that's, that's in a nutshell, hundreds of millions of dollars that I could save the company. So my leadership style was always focused on that. And today I don't think of myself as running the Reverse Logistics Association. I think of the members running it. I think of the advisory board running it. And I, am, I feel lucky enough to be the director for this organization, but the organization is, is founded on the principles of everyone has something to contribute and everyone has something to learn. So that's, that's my, I think I had most of that leadership style, even when I was calling on the Sears and Costco's and, 
uh, of the United States and, and Walmarts and so on. Uh, even then, uh, that was my managerial style, uh, consultive in, in managerial side. So on a leadership side, it's, it's share and be a director for the people who are out there who know what they're doing. And to orchestrate, I guess, and to um, to serve. I mean, what you've just dis, dis, um, outlined is helping others to be at their best and for you to serve them, which I think resonates with me as a leadership style. Um, although we don't see an awful lot of that around today, do we? And we mm, can look at... No. <laughs> you're in the States and we can look at... Um, examples there and examples in the UK where we don't have that style of leadership and I, I don't know how I don't think it's particularly successful or works particularly well. Um, it, it can be successful Rebecca but only for a while eventually the fear approach the demand approach will catch up to you you will lose good people they will go elsewhere where they're more valued and uh and, and I feel the same way about the advisory board, every member company. Um, I, I read a note about uh, Facebook once, and, and it relates to the fact that how many people can you be friends with? How many people can you really know? And I think they define the circle as 300, that once you're past 300, you're in overload. Um, you're not keeping good track. And, I, and in some ways, I'm sorry for that. When I went to conferences and I spoke, I didn't have to know everyone there. I feel now when I have a conference and 600 to 1,000 people show up, I regret that I don't know them all. But it's simply, it, it's not a matter of the brain capacity. It's a matter of what, what information you can m maintain about people and, and so on. So I, I have a little bit of that regret uh, we've gotten so large that I don't know everyone as well as I want to. But at the same time, Rebecca, I can encourage everyone from the youngest to the oldest, from the newest to the to the veterans, that there's always something to learn at each and every event. I actually regret sometimes I have to stand at the back of my hall listening to the speaker and I keep getting interrupted by people. And I'm like, I just want to hear what they have to say. They're saying something good and I'm not gaining that knowledge. But at the same time, I'm leading that vision of the knowledge is there. Go listen to it and go share what you've got. So, you know, it's a yin yang of life. And I get what what drives you to have that knowledge, Tony, because um what is it that makes you want to continue to learn? Well, here's something that I hope Callum and other younger people will focus on. There needs to be kind of your own personal drive inside. You have to want to be better. You have to want to be the best. And you have to find a place where you're happy doing that. If you're an accountant and you're working in a bean counter role and you really hate that environment, you're never going to be better. You're never going to be the best. You might survive, but it's to me, it was about being the better. And that comes from my sales world. When I was at Sony, I, I achieved something called a Samurai Award, which was a Leadership Sales Excellence Award. And, um, and I got to go to Japan. So there was a nice reward system built in for these uh, you know, 
sales achievement awards. And then at Phillips, uh, I had many chances to, to be part of a winning team. Uh, the division that I was in was a winning division. My uh, role was a winning role as a director. And then we won a Sears Partners in Progress role. Uh, award for the first time ever for our company. So that achievement is inside. Now, did I spend 99% of my time thinking about how to win the award? No. What I thought about 99% of the time is how can I do this better? And eventually, if you are focused on that, people notice you will be successful and you'll be happy. At the end of the day, you, I love what I'm doing. I don't do it for uh, much of a, a salary these days. I do it because the world needs this association. And and I will do it for free if I need to, um, because the world needs this association uh, everywhere. People need to be thinking about it. And they are now, of course, with e-commerce driving returns much, much higher. Uh, the world is paying a lot more attention to, oh, my God, these things are coming back. What do we do with them? And um and, and so I, I, I love what I do. And again, I would stress that as a younger person, you need to love what you're doing as much as possible because that will make you want to be better at it. And it's easy to become better at it. Um, you can listen to people who are better at it and something will resonate. You can listen to a 45 minute presentation like this one on, on, on uh, video, on audio, podcast, videocast, blogs, vlogs, any, any way you want to, something will resonate. You're going to listen to that and say, I like that. And what's cooler, well, I, that's an old term. What gets to be more amazing is when you go and listen, in my case, I listen to returns presentation by Nike. What do they do with their returns? I listen to some clothing manufacturers, cosmetics. I never thought of cosmetics in the return space, but there's all these little cool ideas that they've all developed. And then my place and my success was because I'm like, wait, I could take that plus that, put them together, use them at Phillips and be more successful. And that was absolutely true. So, um, the quick start guide was a good example. I was key in the development of that. I was the one who brought the information to senior management. Did you know that America reads at a fifth grade level and you're making instruction books that are for college graduates? So it was, um, it was great to be an influence in that space, <clears throat> but it was because I put two and two together in different speeches that I heard. And, uh, and that's important, putting two and two together uh, makes the difference at your company. And each of us is unique. Each of us is individual. So we absorb things differently and we have different powers of influence at our company. Um, I mentioned those first couple of years in this role at Phillips that they handpicked me for. They didn't tell me there'd be blood involved. But standing in front of a CFO, having to defend the numbers, standing in front of engineers, having to explain why things keep coming back that they say are perfect, um, trial by fire, you know, putting the uh, sword in the fire and then pounding it into shape. It's kind of what the experience was in the first few years. And you either survive it or and, and do better or you get out because it's not right for you. And I love the fact that you you talked about always striving to be better and that that's something with inside you that you have that passion and desire to consistently do. And I think that's a, a strong message to come out of, of the podcast, Tony. And what 
I mean, you are a leader and you're really passionate about the reverse logistics um, sector. And there is no doubt about that. And I have seen that in working with you and that passion comes through. What would you like to share as we kind of wrap up the podcast, um, Tony, about future plans that you might have, which you would like to share with listeners? Wow. Well, I, I guess um, the, the fact is I'm kind of in the twilight years of my career, right? I survived uh, 35 uh, plus years in the consumer electronics sales and marketing industry, but the last 20 have been the best. And so I know I love being in this space and I don't see a limit on it. Now, I don't want to become a workaholic. Uh, but I don't think of what I do as work. I think of it as being an evangelist. Going around the world and preaching is is not work. It's it's uh, it's an experience that I love, and I love doing it over and over. Certainly miss the fact that we are all limited on where we can go these days. Uh, you're all based in Europe, and you don't want ugly Americans to visit you right now with good reason. Um, but we know that'll change. So I look forward to that. And I, I guess I would think um, what the next few years will bring for me will be finding ways to impact the e-commerce space dramatically. Because if the returns world, let's round numbers, let's say it's 10%. If you go so buy something at a store, 10% of the time you'll return it. You buy something online and it's three to four times that number. So that's a nightmare. And what I love most recently about what the RLA is doing, we're connecting with organizations, uh, one based in U UK, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, the circular economy world. Mm -hmm. And what I love is that everything in the circular economy comes through reverse logistics. It's, it's, ingre it's inbred uh, into it, it's ingrained. Um, and I love those people. They have such an altruistic vision of what they're trying to accomplish, and it's going to trickle down. And I look at my colleagues in this space as learn that message and take it back, because what I love about doing this is giving everyone, Rebecca, and, and people like Callum, everyone in their career gets a chance to be a hero. And there is no better feeling on the planet than getting the chance to be some kind of a hero. If you reduce returns, you can point to the being a tree hugger. You've reduced waste. You've reduced packaging. You've uh, you found a reuse for products. That makes you a hero at your company. It, it, it makes such a difference on the numbers. And again, I'll go back to that. Learn to be learn to have a finance person be your buddy so you can find those numbers that you can promote and and improvements so you can look like a hero sometimes you're a hero and you don't even know it and honestly rebecca in the first few years i didn't realize how dramatic that impact was um but whatever impact you have measures goes directly to the bottom line and all you have to do is is get your cfo to understand that and they treat you nicer. So um, it's, it's um, I look at continuing this evangelistic role, preaching to the choir, preaching to the new uh, choir, the new people, 
And what I love about the younger people is that there's that passion for the circular economy, for sustainability, for reducing waste and reducing um, uh, and reducing landfills. And it ties so close with what we focus on in the RLA, the Reverse Logistics Association. So I feel like uh, we can do this for a while. Uh, it gives me energy to do this. I, I, I get um, I get all fired up talking about it to uh, to, to anyone. So it's um, it's a little bit of a challenge. In the early years, it was a challenge for my family, trying to understand, you know, my son. What does dad do for a living? Well, he stops people from taking things back. I was like, <laughs> you mean we can't take stuff back anymore? So, um, so it uh, it's a it was a challenge, but uh, my my son understands it now, and he's uh, pretty good about it. And uh, and so I I look to continue doing this because I I don't envision a retirement scenario where I go play golf every day. Mm. That's not what I'm about. I envision a scenario where I can continue to grow the association, maybe take a backseat role with another executive director in five years, uh, running the day-to-day -day kind of things. But I, I really have found a love of the people in this, of what we do, and uh, I know that will continue for the rest of my life. Well, it certainly comes across, Tony, and doesn't it? Mm, In yeah, terms of knows. your passion and commitment to it. And thank you for the advice that you've shared today and your insights into leadership. And the things that spring to mind for me are knowing your numbers and aiming to be better. And being passionate as well is one of the main things, isn't it? Yeah, you need to talk about Talked about that a lot. And yeah, I think thank you very much for everything you shared. It's been been really insightful and clearly know a hell of a lot of stuff about the uh, reverse statistics industry. That's very evident as well. Um, so thank you very much for everything you shared, Tony. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Very welcome. There's there's a hell of a lot more that could be learned, um, but we'll do that on another podcast, perhaps, and uh, in the future. Do. We will do. Okay. So thank you, Tony. Let's um we appreciate your time completely and your commitment and your drive. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very welcome.